Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 307, and today's guest is Andrew Brown, CEO and co-founder of Check. It's nice to get paid, but what happens behind the scenes for each payroll cycle is actually very complex. There's a plethora of different tax calculations, remittance, filing, plus the movement of money between companies and employees. There's so much going on. Yet, it would probably make sense for lots of companies to offer payroll as an add-on service for their existing business. That's where Check comes in. Check is a payroll as a service API that allows companies like Homebase, Bambi, and Seven Shifts an easy way to integrate a payroll product, which creates new sources of revenue and the ability to better service the needs of their customers. The company is backed by Stripe, Index Ventures, Bedrock, and Thrive Capital. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the difference between building and scaling a B2B versus a B2C business, Andrew's background story, including the difficulty of getting Duke UNC basketball tickets and starting his career at Google, the inspiration behind Oyster, which was a Netflix for books that had scaled and the company's exit to Google, all the details about Check and why this market was so interesting for building another company, advice for founders on building a platform of platforms company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at $0 a month. That is free. Plus, you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0, at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Andrew. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Keith, thanks for having me on today. I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, We have a lot to cover. And actually, the starting point of our conversation is kind of like a tipping point of exactly how much we have to cover. That being, you're a serial entrepreneur, you've started companies in both consumer and B2B. So, I usually talk to entrepreneurs that have like like one of those lanes, not both lanes. So that's a very unique perspective. So I wanted to start the conversation by talking about, you know, the biggest differences you've seen from building more of a consumer company versus, you know, more of a B2B enterprise company. Yeah, to me, they are very different in many ways. And I think that the way I compare and contrast them is that a consumer business it's kind of air warfare. There's, you know, you're, you're pretty far from the ground, which are your customers. And you're really thinking in big numbers, you know, how do I get thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of people to do thing X and get in front of them in terms of ads and that sort of thing. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit more almost academic in some ways, whereas a B2B business, especially an enterprise one, like we run a check is, is honestly the exact opposite of that. It is basically trench warfare. You know, you are in, talking with your customers every single day, getting them to sign up, working, helping them build their businesses. I think in our case, that's even more true because we don't just, uh, it's not even really, we just have customers. We have partners that we're working closely with to help them, you know, build their companies. And so it is, uh, I personally love the latter a lot more because it's so much more human actually in in many ways, because you are, you know, you know, these people, you have deep relationships with them uh, who are your customers and who you're helping out. Uh, But they're, you know, I think different people prefer different ones, but that, that's what I found to be true. Well, we're going to get into a deeper dive of each company that you've built. So uh, we'll save that for, for a couple of minutes here. But before we get into all that, let's talk about your background story. So 
Where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, uh, I'm originally from Greenville, South Carolina. So born born and raised down there. Um, both of my parents come from uh, come from South Carolina, so pretty deep roots down in that area. Um, you know, growing up, I would say I was I was always a kid that, that did well in school, was was really ambitious, and you know, it probably stood out relative to what I do now. Is I was really into video games. Um, I think like a lot of kids. Uh, you know, I was playing on, I don't know, probably the original Nintendo and N64 and this stuff. And then eventually my family got a computer and I started playing, uh, you know, various games online. And I think that was my hook into the internet. As soon as I realized that you could play games on the internet, I wanted to set up, you know, websites for teams I was on and forums and that kind of stuff. And uh, I think really it was a pretty, a little bit of a winding path, but, you know, ultimately a direct line from there to uh, studying engineering and kind of what I do now. Yeah, so you study computer science and economics at Duke. So anytime I have someone from Duke on the program, I like to ask. So I I visited Raleigh Durham to see a friend. We toured the campus just for fun, just to check out Duke and UNC. And all these kids were were camping out. And we're like, what is this? Why are all these kids camping out at Duke? Come to find out the process for getting tickets to the Duke UNC game, I have mad respect for. So were you part of that? <laughs> That that was me. I was absolutely a Cameron crazy. Uh, tented a couple of times, but in particular, my freshman year, spent three months living in a tent, uh, waiting for <laughs> tickets to uh, to that game. Which is, you know, it's half. We were huge basketball fans. You want to be front row. It's a really fun environment. You know, the best sporting environment you're ever going to get the chance to go to. Um, and then on top of that, it's also such a social thing, especially for freshmen. So much of the class like lives out there, and it's uh, it's, it's kind of one big party. Yeah, no, I like it just gave me a totally different perspective when you watch that game on TV now, what those students had to do to get those seats. And it's such a small arena. Totally. Yeah. It's, it makes you realize why they're so passionate about it, and, you know, screaming their heads off so much. It's like they've been waiting, you know, whatever, one to three months to get in there. It has been, uh, it's quite the buildup. All right. So after school, like, was your first job product management? Because that's unique. A lot of, you know, but that's not a degree someone graduates from. So how did you land into that? that sector. <laughs> yeah, that is perceptive. And um, basically the way this went is I, like a lot of kids, didn't know what I wanted to do in college at first. And um, most kids in that time period do were going into banking and consulting or, you know, maybe they go to law or med school or whatnot. And probably first couple of years, I was on a similar track, but just none of those things were exciting me. I wasn't passionate about any of them. And the iPhone had come out right around that point in time. And I got totally inspired again, going back to my playing video games and building little websites and stuff. I was like, this is the future. This is amazing. I want to build stuff for it. So I um, started teaching myself to code a little bit more, you know, taking classes online. And eventually a light bulb went off and I said, you know what, I should be studying this. Like, why, why am I doing this in my free time instead of, you know, doing it as part of school? And so I, I switched over into computer science and the way that led to product management is number one, I got into to computer science, not because I loved, you know, the, maybe the underlying, you know, abstract math behind computers, although got more interested in that over time. But really, I got into it because I wanted to build things for people, which I think is very much, you know, what the job of uh, product management is. And um, 
I, I also, frankly, when the recruiting cycle was going on for uh, for jobs, it literally only just switched in. So if I was trying to interview to be an actual engineer, no one in their right mind, you know, would have uh, would have hired me at that point in time. So PM was sort of the mix of I think both what I was best suited to do and also what I was actually qualified to get hired for. So what did you work on at Google? Yeah, I was part of uh, a product called DoubleClick for Publishers, uh, which on the first day they told me about. And my next question was, what is that? I've never heard about this. <laughs> I figured I'd be on, you know, Gmail or Google Maps or, you know, one of these <laughs> things that everyone knows about. Um, but it turns out this thing, DoubleClick for Publishers, serves, um, you know, most of the display ads on the internet. So you go to, you know, ESPN.com or any of the other Disney sites, you know, places like that, all the ads on YouTube, for example, uh, all were served via the uh, the infrastructure that we built out, um, which turned out to be an amazing starting place for my career for two reasons. And I actually, um, actually three reasons. And I take a lot of lessons from that time period over to check. Um, number one is, especially back, you know, this was 10, 12 years ago, um, Google had just an incredible collection of talent. Um, and I've been honestly quite impressed and surprised by how many of those folks have intersected with at various points in my career in pretty meaningful ways uh, along the way now outside of Google. Um, second, to your first question about a consumer versus B2B business, like that was a classic B2B enterprise businesses. You know, our customers are some of the biggest companies in the world. I learned a lot about how to run that type of company there. Um, and then finally, like, we were a big backend, you know, infrastructure type platform. Um, and, and it turns out actually um, ads and, and kind of payroll, they do now moving money. There's, there's quite a few similarities there. And um, I've taken some of those practices over. All right, well, let's talk about uh, your first company. It was the, you know, the consumer company I was alluding to before. So uh, Oyster, so, so, so how did you and your co-founders come up with the idea? Yeah, so... Um, Oyster uh, fundamentally was think of it as Netflix for eBooks. So it was the world's first um, consumer subscription service where you could pay $10 a month and have access to um, more than a million books that we had in our catalog and um, all via our iOS and Android and web apps that we built out. Um, I started it with, uh, with two other guys, Eric Strauberg and Willem Van Laker. And really, we we came up with the idea because we were all number one big readers. Like we we loved books, and you know, speaking for myself, I was definitely a nerd as a kid. And you know, you know, have competitions in elementary school to see who'd read the most books or whatever. And you know, that was that was always me, and I took pride in that. So starting something generally that had to do with books made a lot of sense to me. Um, and we were simultaneously inspired by the experiences that have been built in other forms of media, you know, whether that be Spotify or, or Netflix. Um, Spotify in particular at the time was brand new, and we took a lot of inspiration there. Um, and then on the flip side, equally frustrated by the lack of a similar experience in the book space. It was a platform that um, at the time and still is really dominated by Amazon and, you know, their core, you know, $10 a book model. And uh, we just felt like this wasn't what consumers wanted. It wasn't the future. And so we set out to try and build something better. So one of the things when I was reading about, well, like I remembered Oyster, um, but what I was thinking about as I was thinking about the history of the company is like, you're disrupting a publishing industry that was like, you know, Amazon was probably their enemy and they're looking at upstarts as either are they friends, they competition. And so you had to go get licensing deals with these publishers. How, like, how did that, those conversations go? Yeah. Um, 
a lot of people told us at the time that we were absolutely crazy to start this company for exactly that reason. Um, and, and you know what? They weren't wrong. Uh, we managed to get a lot of them done, but it was not easy. Um, exactly the, the way you framed it, you know, our Amazon was for sure their big enemy at that point in time. Were we, you know, enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing? Or actually, is it the whole sort of technology upstart world is, is our enemy? And depending on which publishing house you're talking about and you know which person you asked there you would get different answers about you know what we were what we were trying to do at oyster but you know fundamentally there were two things we did that i think got um the publishers to listen to us and number one is we built an amazing product you know all of them could look at the the apps the experiences that we built and really the the care and craft that we put into them and say okay this is not a fly by night thing with people that don't care about it. This is a like actually a great experience that people are going to want to use. Number one. Um, number two, we were quite intentional about um adapting our model to make sense for the publishers. And I mean that from an economics perspective, but also a selection perspective. So you know, the dirty secret within publishing was that books basically made all of their money in the first year. And for the vast majority of books, no one ever picked them up off the shelf, uh, you know, once they'd been around for, you know, six or 12 months. And so um, quite often what we would do is introduce windows where books would, you know, become available on the service after a period of time. And that would really help drive readership, um, you know, into some of these things that otherwise, you know, authors invest years into and, uh, and no one ever picks them up. So that was a big part of the promise for these, these publishers was helping them really monetize their back catalogs. All right. So that's one side of the equation. Now we need to talk about consumers. How did you get traction with consumers? Yeah. That was in many ways the easier part, especially earlier on. The core promise was pretty obvious, which is especially if you're a big reader, you can have, again, a million plus books all at your fingertips for 10 bucks a month. You know, it's kind of like, what's the catch? What's the downside? And, and you know, you had to be okay with our selection. We were always doing, you know, new deals. It was more like Netflix than Spotify and that it was a subset of the, um, you know, the things that were available out there. But we probably had... 60% of if you walked into a, you know, a Barnes and Noble or another bookstore and, you know, what you'd expect to find there, you know, we had it in the apps. The selection was ultimately pretty good. And so for consumers, it was really pretty much a viral hit, you know, right from the beginning. Um, we spent a couple of years building the service out and getting those deals done. And keep in mind, you know, I was 23 at the time. I just quit this good job at Google. My parents looked at me and were like, you're crazy. Why are you <laughs> quitting are you doing? And doing this? You're leaving yeah, Google? Exactly. <laughs> I thought it was nuts. Um, and then shortly after we launched, you know, we got written up everywhere and then we're featured on um, on the Today Show as like their, you know, recommended gift of the holiday season or whatnot. And uh, I think at that point, you know, both my mom and, uh, you know, most of the other people in my life recognized, all right, maybe they're actually onto something here. <laughs> Today Show validation. You're good. <laughs> exactly. All right. So like you raised capital and I looked at your initial uh you know, angel investors, seed investors, and then your uh, series A of uh, Highland Capital, like I, it was just, you know, Chris Dixon and just a great, great list of investors. So how did you guys go about raising capital initially? Yeah, um, I give a lot of credit to my co-founder, Eric, um, for the way we did this early on. And it was really, especially at the beginning, it was relationship driven. Um, 
and, and I will say too, the startup environment, especially in New York where I'm based and where we based um, both my companies, uh, was much, much smaller at the time than it is now. And so really our whole fundraising story started um, via a relationship with Chris Dixon, who you mentioned. Uh, my co-founder, Eric, had turned down a great job offer from Goldman uh, to go work for free as an intern for Chris's tiny little startup at the time. And this was way before Chris was, you know, a big this deal. Is this is and Hunch, now this right? Is hunch. Exactly. Yeah. This is Hunch. And uh, Eric was an intern. I don't even know if he got paid, uh, you know, at Hunch for a bit and then became close with Chris there. And uh, and then Chris was really a mentor and advisor, you know, to to Eric, certainly, but really to, you know, the whole Oyster team and really helped open doors for us for that initial fundraise. Wow. Very cool. All right. So eventually you scaled the company and I noticed at one point you decided, you know, your subscription, but then you added individual purchasing, you know, as an offering too. So what was the trigger behind that decision? Yeah, we wanted you to be able to have, um, basically to do all of your reading within Oyster was the goal because we built this amazing consumption experience for books. So, you know, folks would tell us how much they loved the the way they, you know, search the catalog and then be able to, you know, take notes and highlight and all the little things uh, that come down to create a great reading experience. And as I mentioned, you know, only 60% of the catalog was available uh, via subscription. Um, and so we recognized that, you know, the demand was there from our users uh, to want the other 40%, even if they had to pay for it. And so that was our way of really um, leaning into the great experience we had built while also acknowledging the reality that we weren't going to get that other 40% in uh, into the subscription, you know, within any reasonable time frame. All right. So how did the uh, exit to Google come to fruition? Yeah. Um, you know, Selling companies is a funny business. Uh, I think it is a, a an aphorism that, in my experience, definitely rings true: is that companies are bought, not sold. So we we weren't looking to sell Oyster. We had, you know, big ambitions. We wanted to turn it into something like you know what Spotify and, uh, and Netflix are now. Um, but Google saw what we were building. Both myself and and one of my co-founders, Willem, had a history there. You know, they worked at Google prior. And what they looked at is they said, hey, we've got this whole big team building um, a, a books app that's pre-installed on every Android device. So, you know, a billion plus people around the world use it. And frankly, our experience just isn't as good as the one that you guys have built with a, you know, much smaller team in a much faster period of time. Um, they were frankly behind, certainly behind Amazon, but also behind Apple in their ebooks efforts. And they said, hey, we've got this just absolutely incredible distribution engine induced distribution opportunity. If you took the experience that you built at Oyster and turned it into the Google experience for um, for ebooks um, and put that into our distribution pipeline onto all these Android devices, number one, it'd be incredible, you know, exposure for the um, you know, the experience that, that we had built and for Google. They thought they'd be able to, to sell a lot more books and, uh, and build a much bigger business out of it. So um, it, was a, it was a natural fit from that perspective. Um, and I think also, frankly, from our point of view, too, we recognize that going in alone as a you know, small startup, you know, 23, 4, 5-year-old kids trying to do these deals with these, you know, in many cases, 100-plus-year-old publishing companies um, was going to be a long road. Uh, and we felt like we really had taken it about as far as we could. So as you, you know, talked about, you know, you were building a company for the first time, yet it became a meaningful company. So what were some of the biggest lessons learned during that time frame? 
Oh man. Uh, I mean, Oyster taught me pretty much everything that, uh, that I know. I think first and foremost is the importance of people. Um, people are everything in business. Um, I was blessed to have incredible co-founders there. I was blessed to have amazing early teammates, um, that we worked, you know, arm in arm with building out the product. Um, and we really, uh, we, we really over-indexed on hiring, I think, young, hungry folks who maybe hadn't proven themselves yet, but had all the talent in the world. Um, and as a result, like, as you, you know, as you pointed out, we were able to build something, you know, really meaningful by virtue of bringing those people together. So, so people and, and culture, I think more than anything else was, uh, was one thing I learned. Um, another I'd say is the importance of just high standards. Uh, we really, uh, we didn't cut ourselves any slack and I'll, I'll give my co-founder Willem a lot of credit here. Like we, we put our feet to the fire and we, you know, we hit our deadlines. We made sure that what we were shipping wasn't just good. It was truly great. Um, and I think that was a big part of what helped us stand out and, and was why part of why we became you know, somewhat of a, a viral hit among you know users in the early days. Um, and that's really infused itself into just my overall kind of operating principles and, uh, and and what I've put into to now the second company. All right, perfect segue. Let's talk about check. So you decided to go more B two B enterprise. So why, like, like what led you and your co-founders of Check down the path of starting what you're doing now? Yeah. So um, it really did stem from Oyster in a lot of ways. I was the, the co-founder and the CTO there. And so led our engineering teams and built out the platform. Um, and for a brief period of time, I was leading marketing too. Uh, and, you know, as we were discussing earlier on uh, B2B versus consumer businesses, like marketing and consumer businesses is a, is a whole other world. And frankly, one that I found was not my cup of tea, nor did I have any particular differentiation in it. On the flip side, and 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 I would add, I think consumer businesses have a tendency to be kind of winner take all or winner take most markets, and and they're a little bit lottery tickets. Either you, as a founder, you know, you build something that's absolutely massive, or your business just doesn't really work. There's a lot of network effects involved. Um, enterprises and B two B is very different. For B two B businesses, what I found is, you know, what are the core skills you need? You need to be able to see a problem that a business has to be able to talk to them about it and, and understand that problem, convince them that you understand it, and convince them that you can solve it. Uh, and you got to be able to build software that actually solves that problem. Like that's a pretty straightforward feedback loop in a lot of ways. To me, it frankly seemed easier than, uh, than building a consumer business or, you know, again, at least more straightforward. And, uh, and that's really what I wanted the second time around. I learned from Oyster that you know, building companies is not easy. Uh, it's a long journey. And I also, uh, while Oyster had a great outcome, I knew I didn't want to sell, uh, you know, my second company. I, I, I love running companies. I, I, you know, I think at the beginning you mentioned that I'm a serial entrepreneur. That's by accident, not by choice. And if I never start another company, uh, I'll be quite happy, uh, you know. And so the goal was let's pick really the biggest space we can find that we feel like has the most broken software within it that we as you know engineers by background that really like to go deep on problems are going to be well suited to tackle um and and let's go you know run after it for the next you know 15 20 plus years and so that was the basically the core criteria that i had in mind um coming out of oyster for my second company um and then kind of one thing led to another from there to uh, to ultimately find payroll all right. So what is, what is check? Like, how does it work? Like what's, I mean, you, you, you payroll, right? So that's, 
there's different pieces of apparel, but you guys are doing something different in this space. Yeah. So check is the world's leading embedded payroll platform. So what does that mean? Um, first of all, I'll, I'll speak to what is embedded payroll and how is that different from, you know, just regular payroll. Um, regular payroll, which everyone is familiar with, is every company needs to pay its workforce. You know, you can't just spin both them because, you know, the state and the federal government and everyone else wants to take out taxes. You probably need health insurance and workers comp and 401k and all these things. You need a system to actually do that. So the whole payroll industry has gotten built up over the last 75 years or so to um, make it a whole lot easier for business owners to be able to do that, you know, very core task uh, of paying their workforce. The problem is you've had a whole payroll industry get built up kind of as its own standalone thing. And now over the last 10 or 15 years, you've had a whole slew of platforms be built out that enable small business owners to run their whole operations through this one platform. So think Toast for Restaurants or think House Call Pro, who's one of our customers, if you're a plumber or an electrician, or uh, you, know, you can kind of go on and on. We've got other folks that serve construction or that serve startups or almost any type of um, you know, company you can imagine has some platform that's been built specifically for them at this point in time. And Payroll is still totally disconnected from that, or at least was four years ago. And so when we started the company, what we said was our goal was to make the, the basics of payroll, the way you calculate taxes and move money and all those sorts of pieces, um, something that is a piece of infrastructure, a platform that you can build on top of so that our customers can then offer really deeply customized payroll offerings for their customer base, all integrated directly into their platforms. When I said, like, one of the things I love about what I see with uh, a lot of entrepreneurs and how they're building these platforms and, you know, APIs is just um, taking these complex problems, but making them so much better, right? So I had the founder of Column Tax on, and he's focused on, you know, tax software, you know, the, the turbo taxes of the world, but he's selling it through more of a B2B to consumer, you know, B2B to C type of approach. Yep. He's not going to direct to consumer yet uh, payroll taxes. These are things that are so difficult because each state is different municipality. I mean, it's incredibly, I would think defensible for what you're building, but how did you build the domain to, to attack this problem? Cause it is hard. Yeah, and and you're right. These are um, they're complex businesses in a lot of ways. Like we're actually we're not even B two B to C. We're B two B to B, and then our our platform partners are typically late stage startups, maybe public companies, and they then have you know often you know hundreds of thousands of small businesses that uh, that they're supporting, and that's who we're really ultimately at the end of the day serving. Um, but yeah, you know as you mentioned. Payroll's complicated. It, it really is a tax business at the end of the day, and it's one that's hyper-local. So in Pennsylvania, for example, um, every school district has its own tax. And so for us, we have to be able to know what those school districts are and what the tax rates are and how you calculate them and you know repeat that across each state. And I think the, the secret, if there is one, to doing that in the early days is being patient and being really intentional about it. So we said, okay, we're gonna go state by state. We're gonna build this system out. 
Um, we're going to hire folks who have expertise in the area as well. You know, we know that we can't know everything about payroll not coming from the space from day one. So let's make sure we have folks on the team that do. And then we're just going to be methodical. Um, you know, Paul Graham talks about uh, schlep businesses, ones that aren't necessarily maybe uh, hard by per se. You know, you're not trying to build a rocket engine, but that are um, difficult by virtue of just the amount of work that has to go into them that most people don't want to do. And I think check is a, a perfect example of that, where we've done now, you know, four and a half plus years of work in this space. And now every one of our partners is able to take advantage of that and have that at their fingertips, you know, instantly with an API call. Well, the obvious question here is like, well, okay, well, ADP, paychecks, the 800 pound gorillas, what, like, are they doing this? Or, you know, and like, when I think of payroll for venture fizz, um, I used to use paychecks a gazillion years ago. I use Gusto now because it's a much more elegant experience and it's, I don't get infiltrated with paper reports sent to me every single week. It was crazy. So, um, so are you providing just a better experience or is this a category that they're not focused on yet? Or like, like you think about the 800 pound gorillas in the space. Yeah. So check created the embedded payroll space. We were the, the first ones to it. And I think really saw an opening in the market for the following reason. You, you said it even better than I could. You hated the experience, you know, with paychecks and the paper reports you were getting and all this stuff. The same is true of ADP and really all of those, um, you know, 800 pound gorillas in the space. What most people don't appreciate is just how fragmented the payroll market is. So ADP is the biggest player, but they only have about 15% of it. Paychecks is probably second with maybe 8% of it. So that leaves, you know, three quarters wow. plus of the market that is a whole slew of other people. And, um, you know, the the sort of later stage um, tech startups, uh, you know, Gusto and then some of the others, they've got like single digit percentage shares, you know, 1%, half a percent, something like that. So the fact of the matter is like the right mental model is that your typical small business owner in this country still has either that terrible experience that you mentioned that you long ago switched away from, or frankly, one that's even worse because it's being built by a similarly old school, but kind of smaller, you know, mom and pop shop that looks more like their accountant. And so mm -hmm. our view was that needs to change. Um, it should be easier, right? And, and other folks have built companies that showed that, that it could be easier. Um, problem is in payroll, like, you know, you can go back to like consumer versus B2B. How do you distribute a new payroll product? Like, good luck calling up, you know, all 6 million small businesses across the country and saying, hey, I'm, you know, Acme Payroll, like, do you want this? Um, no one's interested in that. Like, it's just not something that business owners want to think about unless they're brand new and, and just getting up and running. For everyone else, and this is part of why I think our model works so well, you know, our customers are, are generally not calling you up and just saying, hey, do you want, you know, Acme Payroll? They're saying, hey, we're going to run your whole business for you. You're going to get A, B, C, D, E, and F from us, of which payroll is one component. You're not even going to have to think about it because it's being totally integrated into your full suite of operations. And so it's just a completely different orthogonal vector essentially to compete against as compared to the you know, traditional legacy payroll players. And, um, and as a result, we've been able to build you know, a unique defensible business and I think provide just a radically better experience for, uh, for these end business owners. So smart, like that distribution is so smart. Like it's not the same, but it reminds me a little bit of a company called Openly that's focused on insurance. But their distribution is through the agents. 
they're not going direct to consumer trying to compete against Geico, Liberty Mutual, right? Like, I mean, good luck trying to compete against those marketing budgets, uh, but they're going direct through the agents instead. And they're the ones that have the relationships with the consumers. And I'm sure they still have that competitive pricing or whatever, but it's a different distribution channel that uh, has been working quite well. Totally. It's, it's really, I mean, it's a lesson I took from Oyster, which is really distribution is everything. You know, I mentioned in the early days we had viral traction there, but then as we grew, it became harder and harder to figure out how do you do marketing and what CAC, the LTV and, you know, how much should we spend each month on, you know, Google AdWords and Instagram and this kind of stuff. And, and I knew that wasn't what I wanted to spend my life obsessing over. And so for check, you know, we, we recognize that you could get just this absolutely tremendous scale distribution by virtue of, of building these partnerships, um, you know, with folks in the space. And that's what has enabled us in, you know, a relatively short period of time to now work with partners that support, you know, hundreds of thousands of small businesses and several million employees um, all over the country um, is not trying to go and do that ourselves. Um, and when you do it right, and I think this is the other sort of hidden in plain sight um you know, really powerful aspect of our business. It's it's not checks business that's being you know distributed through our partners. It's our partners building their own business. Like they are building their own payroll business line, and we're just empowering them to do that by you know creating the tools and having the tax expertise that they you know don't have the time or inclination um, or, or funds necessarily to go and develop on their own. And and that's where you get this really beautiful symbiotic partnership. And, and I, so it's a great new revenue model for these customers, partners. And is that how you ultimately generate revenue is through number of people on payroll or? Exactly. Yeah. The more uh, companies and more people that our partners are paying, uh, the more money tech makes. And, and that's the other beautiful thing is our incentives are directly aligned. So, you know, if we're talking with you about getting into the payroll, we're not going to make money unless you make money and, and vice versa. So uh, I think it's, the best business models are ones where all parties are aligned around the same thing. That was something else at Oyster. I think that we we got wrong. It was a little bit of a gym model. If you read less, we made more money on you because you weren't in, you know, taking up the, the resources. Um, and that's we've been very intentional from the beginning for that not to be the case uh, here at Check. We wanted to make sure that, you know, us and our partners and the in-business owner, you know, all are working towards that same goal. Well, you announced a uh, Series C last year, $75 million led by Stripe, right? So we're talking about all these category defining companies and how they took a model that already existed, but made it so much better. And again, Stripe, I, like I use Stripe to power venture fizz before I use PayPal, terrible experience, terrible, like, like mind numbing, like decline credit cards, all these things that were just such a hassle. I've never had an issue with Stripe for years and years and years now. And it's just amazing. So I thought it was really interesting that they're, you know, they led your Series C round of funding. Yeah, we have, um, I think, a lot of shared sort of DNA with Stripe in terms of just the way we look at the world and what we believe about how software should work. And really the power of a lot of these platforms that we've been discussing to improve the lives of business owners across the country. So I, uh, at, at Oyster, I built our subscription billing service on top of Stripe. I think we were one of their early kind of recurring billing customers. Lots of stuff didn't work especially well with it at the time. So I thought both the good and, and the bad sides and gave a lot of feedback and kind of got to know the team I think, through that experience. And, um, you know, as a result, coming back around, we certainly took a lot of inspiration from Stripe, um, you know, as we built out Check. And I think they, in return, looked at us and said, you know, 
it's it's quite a different business from Stripe, but it's one that is uh, conceptually, uh, you know, very similar. And maybe put it differently, they were like, if we were going to tackle payroll, this is the way we'd want to do it. So let's come in and uh, and back you guys. And um, it's been a really beneficial relationship as a result. All right. So what's the current state of the company? Whatever you can share, like number of employees, number of customers, whatever you can share. Yeah, for sure. So um, we're a uh, you know mid-stage growth business. We're uh, you know just under a hundred people at this point in time. So I mentioned about four years into it. Um, we work with dozens of partners, um, again, many of whom are large, I think public companies, late-stage uh, businesses, and some startups as well. Um, and collectively, uh, you know, alongside those partners, uh, they work with hundreds of thousands of small businesses across the country um, and more than three million employees as well. So. Uh, you know, our day in, day out is working with each of those partners to help them stand up their payroll business uh, and get, you know, higher and higher percentages of their customers attached to it. All right. So one of the things that you mentioned, your learnings at Oyster was, you know, people, it's all about the people in, in terms of, you know, building a successful company. So what what's what's it like working at Check? Like, like what's the culture like? Yeah, I think we are, uh, we're a culture that likes to Number one, go deep on problems, and, and two, maybe as a result of that, like embrace the nerdiness. If you go and look at our blog, like we have a whole series of posts tracing payroll back to literally the whaling industry and the way it worked there, <laughs> and how that you know kind of came through. And and honestly, in a lot of ways, war has powered the payroll space because war requires taxes, and it was really through World War II that a lot of the early taxation system in the U.S. finally got put in place where um, employers had to do withholding. And anyway, I share all of that because we're a group that we don't just stop at the surface level. That's not the kind of business that we are. We we go really deep on the problems to understand, you know, both how they work today, but also the history of them. And uh, and I think that's that's how we approach our craft. We want to make sure that we know more about it than anyone else, because that is what enables us to actually build at the top layer, something that's a lot simpler than you might expect it to otherwise, um, you know, have to be. Now you're growing the team, hiring. So what are the hardest positions to hire for? You know, I feel like the classic answer to this is probably a software engineer or maybe an amazing salesperson. It's funny. I feel like in both of those cases, uh, we've been quite good at hiring them. Probably comes we come from engineering backgrounds, and and in our model, the uh, you know the salespeople we're looking for, like it's a pretty cool job. I think for us, it's it's been funny. I would say design and marketing have been the two hardest roles over time to hire for. Maybe because we're we're pretty back in business, at least historically, and um, frankly, it's just. Uh, not what I've most naturally probably focused on or, or my background. And so finding the right fit of folks who liked the type of business we were working on, understood, you know, our customer set and wanted to do that kind of work has been a little harder. Yeah. Like marketing is definitely hard, but I think most companies struggle with design because there's not, there's, you know, it's kind of like you have your own vision of what design should be. So you have that. And then, there's the problem you'll work on. Is the design team going to be interested in working and solving that? Is it, um, you know, something that, uh, you know, I think it's a supply and demand problem. There's not a lot of uh, designers out there that, you know, so it's uh, it's definitely a challenging area that I've always, when I was a headhunter, um, companies would ask me if I could help with user experience design. And I'd be like, no, <laughs> <laughs> don't want to touch that. Totally. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. 
I mean, it's funny. So my, my co-founder Oyster was this incredible designer. And so we, we were the opposite. Like we were known for design. We had no problem hiring people there. Um, and I think what I learned over time is you just have to know your pitch. You got to know like what stands out about you for these people. And so we've created a bit of a niche for ourselves, which is if you are a deeply technical designer that likes building, um, you know, systems really, uh, we're the best possible place for you to come and work. You're going to, as I alluded to, get to go so deep on these problems, understand them in a way that really no other designer can, and then build, you know, amazing software out of those and uh, and, and have you know, kind of a lot of leverage from your work as a result. So that's over time, we figured that out and it's worked well for us. All right. So what advice would you have for entrepreneurs that are trying to build like a platform of platforms company? You know, it's, 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 it's a tricky thing. So what advice would you have? Yeah, I, I can. And I don't know, maybe in the future should write a book about this. But I think that <laughs> the first thing, especially if you're early on to understand, is in a B2B business, especially a platform of platforms, who your customers or we call them our partners are, is everything. And I, I would really obsess over, you know, who is that first partner or two or three that you're going to work with and, and make sure that. Uh, they can really pull you along. So if you get them right and and you execute well in the background, like it, it's kind of hard for you to lose. Like you have, like they're going to power your business as they continue to grow. And they are also going to be really smart. And so we're going to give you incredible feedback that's going to enable you to actually, you know, iterate on your business and improve it faster than, you know, other competition in the market. But conversely, if you pick wrong, pick partners who aren't growing or who are giving you, you know, feedback misaligned with the direction of really where the, the market is going and where you want to take your business. Um, you're, you're going to be pretty stuck. So um, yeah, focus on who those, those first customers are. All right. So three apps you can't live without. All right. Well, let's see. What are my three most used, most critical apps? Um, Superhuman's got to be one. Uh, definitely live in live in my email, and uh, you know they've, they've built an amazing amazing product over there. Um, Overcast is probably second. I'm definitely a, a podcast uh, addict, and uh, you know it's it's my way to unwind and uh, always have them in, in in my ears going on if I'm you know not in the middle of some meeting or whatnot. And uh, maybe my newest one would be uh, an app called Future, uh, which is a virtual fitness service and. Um, Got married recently, signed up for it probably a year ago and uh, did a great job working with like a virtual personal trainer there to get me in shape for my wedding and excited to, you know, keep that going now. Very cool. I haven't heard of that one. I'll have to check that out. But the podcast app, that's a good segue for, okay, like a recommended podcast or book. You could recommend a book too. Oh, um, all right. I'll do a quick one of each. Uh, the Acquired is uh you know i think a can't miss podcast uh, their, their most recent episode on costco is just incredible in terms of the business model that they've built over there so highly recommend that um late summertime here if you want maybe you know labor day is coming up you want a good sort of escapist read uh check out barbarian days uh by william finnegan it's this amazing um uh, narrative essentially about his life. He's a writer now for the New Yorker and he's a huge surfer. Uh, and it's essentially a, almost a diary of his uh, escapades as a, a younger man traveling the world as a surfer and what that was like. And uh, it was just, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, I think we're people that really chase our dreams and, and our passions. And, you know, he was doing the same thing, obviously in a totally different domain with surfing, but you can't, I think, 
read that and not kind of admire it and, uh, and relate to it too. I'm going to double down on the acquired recommendation because uh, Ben Gilbert and David Rosenthal, they, they absolutely do a phenomenal job. So uh, I've been following them for maybe a couple years now, I think. I don't know, but um, I listened to their Nike episode. I haven't done Costco yet because, you know, these are long form. This, I think the Nike one was like four hours or something, and they'll break them up into different yeah. episodes sometimes. But I read Shootout. I saw the Air movie. You know, I thought I knew about Nike. Oh my God, I learned so much listening to that. And I, I like the the Jordan story. There was so much to add on to that. So you got to listen to Acquire. There's, it's amazing. Uh, and there's such yeah. a catalog now. Totally. I haven't done the Nike one yet. I'm gonna have to uh, have to do that. It's it's amazing. But yeah, it's been. I I think I was one of the first listeners back in the day. I don't know, literally probably like seven eight years ago, whenever it was first getting started, and uh, it's been really fun to follow along with their journey. Oh gee, okay. That's my <laughs> that, that's you know it's it's kind of my other advice to like founders is like you just gotta obsess about this stuff. If like business building isn't your life, like you probably shouldn't be a founder, you know. So like whether it's listening to their podcast or to your point, reading every you know you dog and every other book you get your hands on, and you know have a dinner with your friends that are starting things and picking up tips and tricks from them, you know that's that's what it's all about. Agreed. I mean, obviously you have the Venture Fist podcast. So I'm very biased on what we're going to listen to here, but you have Jason Calacanis and you've got so many, like every VC has a podcast. Like there's so much content out there that you should be able to dig really deep into different subject matters that you care about and learn so much. It's uh, such an advantage versus starting a company 20, 30 years ago. So take it full, full advantage. Um, so what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Uh, pretty much anything outside, hiking, skiing, climbing, uh, whatever, even if it's, I live in New York, so even if it's just taking my dog out for a walk in the park, uh, whatever I can do to get out from uh, behind my computer and, uh, you know, get some sun on my face, maybe get the blood pumping a little bit, um, well, all that kind of stuff. Very cool. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously, all the great work you've been up to in terms of building companies and all the great advice. Yeah, no, absolutely. Keith, thanks for having me on. This has been a blast. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.